Well, we're studying the book of Hebrews, and I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And as you're turning there, it is our custom to preach through books of the Bible. In fact, one of my daughters uh, asked me, well, what are you going to preach on next? How do you pick on what to preach next? And I said, God tells me what to preach next, because the very next verse and the very next chapter, the very next paragraph, that's what I'm going to preach. And uh, that way the Lord determines what I preach and what we are to hear as we preach consecutively through books of the Bible. Today, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, this is an amazing portion of the Bible. And maybe you'll be as stunned and as astonished as I was in my week of study as you hear uh, what God has for us in The passage before us. I'm going to preach on the dignity of man and how man is crowned with glory and honor. Follow with me as I read Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. For he, that is for God, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying... What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now... We do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The grass withers. And the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. It is worldly wisdom and secular scholarship that has been very quick to say that man is socially reconstructable and man can be artificially reproducible. University professors and scientific elites are quick to say and affirm that man is and man can be what he wants to be because he's self-definable. Whatever he identifies is, is supreme for him because man is all-powerful, so they might say. And you know what? That's all around us, isn't it? And that's hopeless, deceived, And erroneous ideologies. It is satanic thinking. It's anti-biblical thinking. Those are all lies. And it's permeated secular thinking. And it's even crept into evangelical circles as well. This kind of thinking that man is is socially reconstructable and can be artificially reproducible. and, And you can define who you are and how you want to identify because you're your own self-made sovereign. Tragic thinking. Owen Strayan, in his very, very good book that was recently written, Reenchanting Humanity, he said, quote, The prevailing view in critical circles today is that mankind is a blank slate. 
that you have evolved from eons old combustion of gases. Humanity has no divine origin but an accidental one through the processes of evolution. No creative figure guided the human race's formation. No creative figure shaped the human person's identity. It's all chaos and randomness that accounts for the order. The human race is really not distinct from the beasts. We are a higher animal and nothing more. We have no greater story. We have no ordained end to which we are traveling. The world teaches that atoms collide, and so does mankind. End of quote. And I think Owen is exactly right in summarizing what the world and the secular and the critical circles are teaching nowadays. And you know that. It's all around. It's all over the the news and the blogs and the articles and the podcasts. It's all over the universities and the educational institutions. But yet we need to hear this. Rather than being a meaningless and a chaotic blob of cells and gases that have randomly come together, aimless, directionless, purposeless, God's word presents a much different and a much better paradigm for humanity. And let's just say it is the true and the reliable and the perfect truth that God has given in his word. And we're going to see that today in Hebrews chapter 2. And, and what I want to share with you, even by way of introduction, is that we need to regain a high view of the dignity and the honor of man. We need to regain a high view of the dignity and the honor of man. It's like what our text says right here in verse 6. What is man that you would remember him or the son of man that you would be concerned about him? The Bible teaches that man is made by God. The Bible teaches that Humanity, mankind, is made in the image of God. You bear the likeness of God. What does that mean? It means that you're a thinking, rational, honorable, dignified being bearing God's stamp and imprint and likeness and glory because you're a reasonable creature made by the finger of God. It's an amazing high view that the Bible has of man made by God and made in the image of God. By the way, maybe there's a little footnote that would be appropriate to bring up here. There's a lot of talk in our day about UFOs, unidentified flying objects. And I suppose there are some of those that are floating around. But are there aliens? That would be an appropriate question that would relate to our topic at hand. Are there aliens? Do they exist? I mean, if if man really is the, the high point of creation that God is concerned about man, well, what about aliens? Do they exist? No. Why? Why don't they exist? Because Genesis 1 is clear that God made life on earth. Earth is the focus of God's attention. And additionally, man's fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, it affected, it corrupted all of creation, including human beings, including plant life, including animal life. Every living thing that exists has been affected and infected by the fall. 
So Jesus came as the God-man, not the God-alien. Let's just remember that. He came to save humans. He came to save sinners. Humans are the highest, the most intelligent life that God has made. Psalm 8 is clear proof of that. There is no alien life in existence. They do not exist. Hebrews chapter 2, where we're looking today, it shows the dignity And it shows the glory and it shows the great honor of mankind. We are are living in crazy times. We are living in confused times. And what we need to do is give our ear and our full attention to what God says so clearly, so authoritatively in the Bible about the great dignity and glory and honor of mankind. So let me remind you of where we are. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, but, but in Hebrews chapter 1, we spent a number of weeks talking about how the author of Hebrews, he has shown the deity and the superiority of Jesus Christ over the angels. Jesus is better. He is far more supreme. He is far more worthy of your worship because he's God. And the reason that the author has to make that claim is because there were some Jewish teachings floating around at this time that almost elevated angels to the point of being worshipped. And so Octor, the preacher, the author, is writing and he's teaching saying, no, 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 don't worship angels. Jesus is better. He is way better. He's better than anything and everything you could ever imagine. Chapter 1 makes that very clear. Remember last week in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the, 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 the preacher turns to exhortation. How will you respond? Don't drift. Hold on to the Savior. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation about this glorious Christ and all that he has to offer? Don't reject him. Don't drift from him. Don't be a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word. And after that exhortation in verses 1 to 4, now Octor, that is the preacher, the author of this, He's going to make the case for the rest of the chapter, all of chapter 2 now, that Jesus is superior to the angels and worthy of worship, get this, get this, in a way that you would never expect. This God actually took on human flesh and became a man and was actually made for a little while lower than the angels. But in becoming lower than the angels, he actually suffered and bled and died and rose and now is seated at the right hand of God. Yes, he's worthy of your worship and your honor and all of the praise because of who he is and what he has done. It's it's a remarkable way that we see the argument develop in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. Here's what we're going to see today. Man has dominion over God's creation. Jesus became man. 
He was made for a little while lower than the angels, and through his suffering as a man, he satisfied God's wrath on the cross when Jesus died. And thus, amazingly, he is crowned with glory and honor, and he reigns supreme over all. And therefore, Christian, you should trust him. And you can rely upon him, and you can worship him, knowing that he is far better, far greater than anything or everything this world could ever present to you. Why? Why all of this? Why the argument of Hebrews 1 and 2? Why showing that Jesus is better than the angels? The author wants to show the deity, the humanity, the destiny, and the authority of Christ. Why? To strengthen your commitment to him. So when the sermon is done today and you walk out the doors and you're having conversations with one another afterward, the goal of Hebrews, the sermon, is for your faith to be strengthened. For you to say, yes, I believe in him, but because of this passage, I believe in him with greater firmness. I cling to him all the more. So today, our passage in Hebrews 2 is going to show the dignity of man. What what is God's plan for mankind? What is God's plan for the greatest man, Jesus Christ? And I want to show you that today in four ways. And they're simple words. They all begin with the letter D. Simple outline. I want to show you first man's destiny. Second, I'm going to show you man's dominion. Third, from the text, we will see man's depravity. And then fourth, we will see man's deliverer. The destiny, the dominion, the depravity, and the deliverer. So, like my study this week, there were two things that I was stunned by afresh. Number one, I was stunned by God's plan for mankind. We live in a world that just rejects or kill babies. We'll kill old men and women. We don't need them. We don't want them. That's that's the worldly thinking of our culture. But God has a much better way. We're going to be stunned by the plan of God for man. And second, I hope that you'll be stunned by the amazing grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Number one, let's look at man's destiny. Man's destiny. Now, I want you to look at verse 5, because what the author is going to do is he's going to sort of go back to what he was saying in chapter 1. He says in verse 5, For he, God, did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. I mean, there is a profound future that is mentioned here in verse 5. The Bible teaches that there will be a renewed and a renovated And a restored earth to come. It's called the 1,000 year millennial kingdom. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 33, Amos 9, and about 50 other places teach clearly on this. Revelation 20 tells us that it lasts 1,000 years. It's a realm to come. It is an inhabited earth where angels are not going to rule. It is an inhabited earth, a realm, a new sphere where angels are not going to rule, but men will. 
Christ, of course, will reign on his throne. Revelation 20 makes that very clear. And all of his people will reign with him on the earth for a thousand years, just like Revelation 20 verse 6 says. But that is what verse 5 is teaching. The author is saying, for God did not subject to angels the world to come. What's the world to come? It's the future coming age. It's not heaven. It is the renewed coming inhabited earth. The rabbis at this time, when Octor was preaching, the rabbis referred to this world to come as the Messianic age. When the kingdom promises would be fulfilled to Israel on the earth and to Jerusalem as the city of God on the earth in the future. To the nations as they would be blessed through the Jewish people Israel and the promises fulfilled when Messiah is reigning on the earth. What's the author saying? It's not to angels that that future kingdom, that that inhabited earth to come, that he's referring to. He's not referring to that. What is this kingdom age going to be like? What will the millennial kingdom be like? Well, the planet earth will be different. There will be geographical, topographical agricultural changes to planet Earth, it's going to be quite different than how you and I see it now. Zechariah 14 makes that clear. Even the inhabitants of the Earth will be quite different. There will be younger and older. There will be death that is nearly gone. There will be glorified saints and unglorified people coexisting together. Isaiah 65 and 66 teach that. There are physical features that will be different. The earth will be redeemed. Even nature, creation will be redeemed. Romans 8. Man will be crowned in Christ. Revelation 3.21. And we will reign as priests on earth with Jesus Christ. Revelation 5.9. For a thousand years as we serve in the kingdom. Even animal life. Even animal life will be different. Isaiah 11 teaches that the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Peace and harmony with no killing and no violence. But it's not the age now. It's not talking about now, the here and now. And it's not talking about the eternal state. Because the Old Testament speaks of this earth. And the death and the rebellion still occurring at this time. So there's some sort of an inhabited, refurbished kingdom age to come where angels are not going to reign. But man will. And creation and angels will be subject to men. The simple point of this is that angels will not reign over the future thousand-year messianic kingdom. You say, Jeff, why are you getting into end times theology right now? Because the present earth is being ruled by angels. The fallen angel, Satan, he is the prince of this world, John 12. He is the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4. The world lies in his power, 1 John 5. He has tremendous influence of tempting and deceiving and hindering and afflicting and and blinding people to the gospel. And, of course, demonic influence is prevalent as well, Ephesians 6. But not in the age to come. Not in the inhabited earth to come. 
When Messiah returns to earth on the white horse and he wages war with his enemies and he establishes his throne on Mount Zion and he reigns on David's throne for a thousand years, ruling with order, ruling with justice, ruling with righteousness. That's what verse five is talking about. Octor is saying to the believers, God did not subject to angels the world to come. They're not going to be an authority. But he's going to show that to man, to man, to God's people, there will be authority given to man in that kingdom. That's the destiny of man. What a profound future God has revealed in the Bible for man. That's the first man's destiny. But the text goes on. He's going to he's going to prove his point. Well, why would man? Why would man have control and power and authority over all these things? Number two in your outline, if you're taking notes, notice with me man's dominion. Man's dominion, right? We've all been there, haven't we? You know, where you're maybe driving through the night or you're camping or you're somewhere and there's just a a, a dark night and you see the clear sky and you're filled with wonder at just the immensity of God and the wisdom of God and the power of God as you see all the stars. And at some point you think... Man, I'm so puny. I'm small. Why me? Why did God create me? Why does God care about me? Why why does God have an interest in me? Does God care about me? Does God remember me? I'm so small and insignificant. If you look in your Bible at verse 6, the preacher, Octor, is going to quote from Psalm 8. He's going to quote from Psalm 8. Now, if you look in verse 6, someone has testified somewhere. It's not like the guy doesn't know where it was in the Bible. He was a brilliant preacher. He knows where it was. He wants you to not have attention on the human authorship of David. He wants to draw our attention to the divine authorship. God said this. Verse 6, someone has testified somewhere saying, what is man? Psalm 8, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? What's man? What, what, What are these dust creatures like us? Why would God care about us? Psalm 8 is a remarkable psalm. And let me sort of describe the psalm for you for a moment. Psalm 8 begins, Jarrett read it earlier, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he talks about how God made everything with the works of his hands and his fingers and how God is splendid and majestic and powerful. Our God is almighty. And then Psalm 8 continues with this profound wonder that God, the immense almighty God, would actually care about Dust-like, frail, weak creatures like us. Why? What is man? Even in the Hebrew, in Psalm 8, it's so emphatic. What is man? A dust-like creature. It's an amazing word that the psalm uses. And then he says in verse 6, or the son of man, just someone who is just earth-like. He's from the earth. He's from the dust. He's frail. He's weak. Why would God care about man? 
Man is so small. We are so puny. We are so insignificant. But then in your Bible, look at Hebrews 2 verse 7. Now we see the dignity of man. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Why would God do that? I mean, why would God take people like me and you, the almighty God who knows all the stars by name, and he crowns you with glory and honor? Why would he do that? Why? Why? Why has he crowned mankind with glory and honor? And he goes on, the dominion, look at this. End of verse 7. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Interestingly, Psalm 8 clarifies this. Psalm 8 verse 6 says, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep, And oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Everything is under the dominion of man. That baffles my mind. Did you hear that? Are you hearing what God's word is saying? That God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. That God has put all things under the feet of mankind. He has appointed you over the works of his hands. This is called the dominion mandate. Just keep your finger here real quick. Go to Genesis 1. Let me show you this. Genesis 1, as you're turning there, so there's no sin yet that has entered the world. God is, is revealing for us through Moses how he made everything in six 24-hour days. Genesis 1, verse 26. Notice the account right here of God creating man on the sixth day. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, don't miss this. Let man rule. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 28, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's the point from creation in Genesis to Psalm 8 to Hebrews chapter 2. There is this biblical theology of a dominion mandate that all things in creation are under the authority of mankind. Man is to have dominion. Man is to rule. Man is to have authority. That's man's dominion. Is that shocking to you? That's pretty radical. It's pretty radical. But there's a problem. There's a huge problem. And that leads to the third point. Third, man's depravity. Man's depravity. That's the problem. You know, even though man has a high dignity... We as men and women, we are corrupt. 
out in our depravity. All mankind. This is teaching man's sinfulness. Now look at verse 8. I want you to see verse 8. This is such a clear passage in verse 8. For in subjecting all things to him, middle of Hebrews 2 verse 8, for in subjecting all things to him, he, that is God, left nothing that is not subject to him. That's a pretty radical statement. God has not left anything that is not subject to mankind. But, do you see that there in verse 8? But, at the end of verse 8, but now we don't see all things subjected to him, right? We don't. You know those little ants that crawl around on your kitchen counter and you think, man, I want them out of here. They don't submit to your authority. Those little critters that eat your flowers that you work hard to plant in your garden, they don't submit to your authority. That little raccoon that steals your food at night when you're camping, like you did us a year ago when you're camping, that doesn't submit to your authority. I have this mole in our front yard. I don't have dominion over him. He doesn't submit to my authority. I I have tried in previous years to poison him, burn him, stab him, kill him, trap him, light him up with an underground firework. I've tried to stomp on him, and he's still alive. Not in subjection to me. Of course, there's much, much more. In all seriousness, though, aren't there? There's drought. There's fears. There's tornadoes. There's havoc all around us, tsunamis that blast countries and slay thousands. Tidal waves, floods, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes. Man is ravaged by disease. We grow old and die. It's like we're staring down the barrel of nuclear destruction, radiation sickness. There's starvation all around us. Wretchedness, depravity, misery, despair, weakness, it's everywhere. Creation is not, right now, subjected to us. We know that. We we understand that. We deal with that every day. Due to the fall, because of sin, in Genesis chapter 3, mankind has been incapable of fulfilling the divinely ordained position to rule over creation. Oh, we want to, but we can't. We can't. It hasn't happened yet. And I want you to look carefully at the end of verse 8 because there's a great little word in the Greek. And I want to show you how this comes out here. End of verse 8. But now we do not yet. Do you see that? Not yet. That goes back to verse 5. There's coming a day in a newly renovated inhabited earth where man will have dominion. And he will exercise that authority. But right now, and men and women left to themselves, born automatically sinners, rebels of God, enemies of God, 
sinners, transgressors, disobedient to the law? Where do you go? Where do you go? What's the answer to this dilemma? How is man going to have dominion over all creation? I rushed through the three points to get to this one. In your outline, look at number four. I want you to see this. You have to look at man's deliverer. The only way that this happens is through Jesus Christ. And what the author is doing here is he's going to show that Jesus is the corporate representative. He's the corporate representative. He's our head. We have a deliverer, Jesus, who is better. He is supreme. He is exalted. And where you and I have failed, he has succeeded. And worthy of worship and worthy of praise. And look at verse 9. This is where we see man's deliverer. Verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Have you seen him? Do you see him by faith? There is bottomless theology to this verse. There is profound theology in this verse. What what is Octor, the preacher, doing? He's been making the case that man was made for a little while lower than the angels, and yet he's crowned with glory and honor. And yet what the preacher is going to do is he's going to show us almost in an unexpected way, you'd never guess how much better Jesus is, because he actually became a man under the angels for a brief while, even to death. So that through his death and his atonement and his blood sacrifice, and his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, he is greater than the angels and worthy of your trust. Oh, there's so much theology in what the author is doing. It's almost as if he's commenting on Philippians chapter 2. Although Jesus existed in the form, although he, speaking of Christ, existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's not just merely saying, oh, he died on a Roman cross. A lot of people did. The point is he died on the cross, the depth of the lowest of the low, taking God's wrath. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself. As a man, a real man, a flesh and blood human like me and you. Lower than the angels for a time. Get this. So that he could obey, live, suffer, die, and rise for us. And then, and then be exalted as our, as our Savior. 
as our Lord, as our deliverer. It's like, it's like the preacher, Octor, is saying he's better. Hold on to him. Worship him. Cling to him. Trust in him. Nothing in your life can be compared to this one. Trust in him. By the way, by the way, when Jesus was alive, he did exercise dominion over creation. Right? I mean, over the fish, Peter, go and cast your, your, go and fish. And guess what? Open the first fish's mouth. Dominion over fish. He had dominion over birds in Luke chapter 22. He had dominion over the wild animals in Mark chapter 1 in his temptation. He had dominion over the domesticated beasts when he rode on a donkey in Mark 11. He had dominion over the waters and the seas and the storms when he calmed them in Mark chapter 4. He had dominion over the angels and demons in Mark chapter 1 when they fully obeyed his authority. Jesus has dominion. But, but look, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9, and this is so cool how the author does it. But we do See him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely, the first time the author uses the title Jesus in the whole book of Hebrews is right here, emphasizing his humanity. Remember that first Adam in the garden? Remember Adam? Yeah, he, he plunged all mankind into sin and death. But remember the second Adam? Remember the greater Adam, Jesus? He was plunged into death for our sake so that we might live. He is the true and the better, the better Adam. I want to spend some time with you carefully looking at verse 9. And if you have the notes there in front of you, you could just jot these down. We're looking at man's deliverer. So let's look first of all at the man, the man. And he's referred to in verse 9 by the name Jesus. We see Jesus. There's an interesting progression in the Bible. In John chapter 12, the Greeks come to the disciples and they say, we wish to see Jesus. Here in Hebrews 2, the preacher says to the believers, we do see Jesus. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, one day we will see his face. Do you behold him by faith, the Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, the human one who came from God as a man conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, born in Bethlehem, raised in Bethlehem and Nazareth. Is the Savior of sinners. That's the man. See the man. We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. You got to see the man. Number two, I want you to see the mission. What did the man come to do? What's the mission? What did Jesus come to do? Look at verse 9. It says, We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. 
And because of his sufferings and because of his death, right now he's crowned with glory and honor. What's the mission? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to die. He came to be buried. He came to rise from the dead. He came to ascend into heaven. He came to be seated at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high, crowned with glory and honor. The mission of suffering, we all suffer. But nobody can suffer in the way of making atonement as the spotless Lamb of God on behalf of others like this one. What what is the mission? If we sort of pull together a theology from the Bible on the mission of Jesus, it begins in eternity past. John 17 tells us there was an agreement in the triune Godhead for the Father's elect to be given to the Son so that he would come to redeem them. It was an agreement in eternity past to redeem sinners. The mission of Jesus even includes the perfect righteousness of his life. He is pure, spotless, blameless, never sinned at all. The mission of Jesus even includes the substitutionary death. The substitutionary death that this Savior, Jesus, would in fact actually die as the righteous one for the unrighteous ones in order to bring us to God. That's the mission. He came to die, to die in your place. And to take the punishment that you've heaped because of your sin, he came to take it all. We see the mission of Jesus even includes the bodily, physical death. Isaiah 53 even says that he was with a rich man in his death and in his burial. Jesus would live a perfect life. He would die a tragic, substitutionary blood-atoning, propitiatory death, but he would be buried in the ground. And then the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he bodily rose from the dead. 1 Peter 3 tells us he ascended into heaven with all angels under his feet. That's the mission. If you look at verse 9 again, we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Why? Because of the suffering of death. Because he suffered, because he took your sin, because he paid it all, and he quenched God's wrath, and now he's in heaven seated at the majesty on high. He's crowned with glory and honor. Implication? Trust him. Implication, worship him. Implication, rely upon him. Implication, tell others about him. But Octor doesn't just say that he suffered in his death. If you're jotting down notes about this deliverer, we've seen the man, we've seen his mission, but I must show you the misery. The misery in one of the most graphic ways. 
Verse 9 tells us that he's crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he will taste death. Isn't that interesting? Why taste death? Why didn't he just say he died? Why taste death? Get this, get this. Because this expression means that he graphically... He graphically experienced the full extremity of the wrath of God and dying. It's the painful reality that is experienced by man. Suffering to the extremities is the idea. He tasted, don't think of like I'm just tasting a sip of water. No, no, no. Think of him experiencing the fullness of the sufferings of death. I think the allusion is to Luke chapter 22 when Jesus said, Father, remove this cup. The cup. Because in the cup was the the wrath and the anger of God directed at sinners. He tasted, he took it. He tasted death by experiencing the physical pains of crucifixion, as bad as that was. He tasted death by experiencing the relational abandonment of separation from the Father on the cross. He tasted death by experiencing the spiritual crushing of divine wrath for your sin. He tasted death by experiencing the curse of sin as man's substitute. Verse 9, he tasted death by experiencing and completing the work of salvation for man. I mean, as quiet as it is in here right now, it would have been that quiet when Octor was preaching at first. He tasted. Death. He endured all of that for you. Why? Why? Why the misery of experiencing all of the death? But here's the fourth word the man, the mission, the misery. It's all of mercy. It's all forth of mercy. Why, verse 9, he's crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, the grace of God, the undeserved kindness of God. It's what we read in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We read about this in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Why? Because Christ redeemed us. He gave himself up for us. He tasted death by grace for all. Well, when we bring the scriptures together, who's the all? 
Well, he didn't die for everybody. Everybody's not going to heaven. He died for all of the elect. All of those who will repent and believe. He died a perfect, saving, effectual, atoning death for them. All of grace. I mean, we see the divine initiative. We see the divine achievement. We we see the divine love. We see the divine accomplishment. It's all here. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus. But I thought you were saying that Jesus is greater than the angels in chapter 1. He is. But for a brief time, he was made lower than the angels so he might suffer and die and make atonement. And now he's crowned with glory and honor. Worship him. So you're here today and you hear this. You're here today in the sanctuary in this place of, of worship and The question is, do you believe this? I mean, do you embrace this? I mean, do you live in true surrender to the one who is right now crowned in heaven with glory and honor? And if you're bought with the blood of Christ, you say, my life is not my own. I belong to him. Have you been changed by this truth? This one who tasted death. So you'll never have to taste it. I mean, this should blow our minds. It should blow our minds with the the dignity and the honor and the the future of man. that, That God has given dominion to man so that we might rule and reign and have dominion in the age to come. Reigning with Christ. What an amazing God. What a plan God has. At the same time, we ought to be amazed that Jesus came humbly. There's the the divine plan. It's not the way you'd expect. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. What's special about him? Well, he had to do it so that he could suffer as a man, die as a man, make atonement, rise from the dead and be crowned. Realize the sufferings of this Christ, his exaltation, his sovereignty, his kingdom. What a great Savior. Why all of this in Hebrews chapter 2? Because the preacher, Octor, he wants you to know this Christ and he wants you to hold him tighter. Don't leave him. Don't drift from him. Don't let the word go in one ear and out the other ear. Don't neglect what you've heard. Hold on to this Savior. What a man. What a man, Jesus, who came to earth to live and suffer and die and arise from the dead and ascend to heaven and now crowned with glory and honor, full, fully, fully, fully atoning for his own people. And you know what? He didn't come and just 
look at death. He, he didn't come to earth and just talk about death. He did not come to earth and just try a little bit of death. Jesus did not come to earth and get near to death. He came to earth and he tasted the full experience of it. He absorbed the bitter pangs of death under God's wrath. And then he said, it is finished. Marvel, marvel at the grace of God. I suppose the question for all of us, boys and girls, in here today, has this Jesus tasted death for you? Do you bow and do you submit to? And do you love and do you obey this king who is crowned with glory and honor? So you go home tonight and then you go to work tomorrow. You go to work Tuesday and you go to work Wednesday and you're going to hear, because we all do in this world, that people think, oh, I'm, I'm unwanted. I, I'm a mistake. I'm meaningless. I'm worthless. I'm insignificant. Anxiety, worry, depression, fear, all that goes with it. No one knows. No one cares. No one's concerned. I'm having suicidal thoughts. And it's true that we are small in this vast, enormous universe. That's true. But our God cares. Our God is concerned. Our God remembers man, and God, in great love, cares in great detail about you and about me. The Bible tells us, and I'll close with this, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Remember him. Don't forget him. Remember him. Risen from the dead, he is the descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But God's word is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. Hear this. Here it is. For if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure We shall reign with him. Praise God for the hope and plan that God has for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given clarity in the book of Hebrews about the honor and dignity and worth of mankind. And what a stunning plan that you have for mankind and for the ages. But by faith, we are here today and we see him who was made for a little while lower, namely Jesus. We see him by faith. We look to him. We trust in him. We we thank you, O Father, for him. We thank you that he is the true and better Adam. 
who has come to save the hellbound man. May you write your truth upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.